Good morning. Good to be back with you all. Today's scripture reading will be in Genesis 37, verses 12 through 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks near, uh, near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, uh, where, are uh, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him from out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers and stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their and their way to carry it down to Egypt. Uh, then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midian tra Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Uh, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robes and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his, all his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and, and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus, my, thus, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Well, well, well. What are you waiting for? You should write that down. Those are the three points of the sermon. <laughs> Point number one, well. Point number two, well. Point number three, well. Today, I'm excited to tell you that all is well. Oh, I know it doesn't look it. I... Everything, everything seems to be broken and sickly. Violence, inflation, COVID restrictions, they're all on the rise. And 
compassion, common sense, civility, those are all in short supply. And maybe that's why we don't have uh, town criers anymore. I was thinking about this this week. Uh, they're kind of a thing of the past, and I, I wonder if it's perhaps they lost credibility when they kept saying, it's 11 o'clock and all is well. I think people were like, yeah, right, fake news. I don't, I don't know exactly where you're at today, but the chances are pretty good that you are in the midst of some significant struggle. Whether you're sick or uh, grieving a loss or involved in some kind of conflict, you're likely experiencing in some way the, the brokenness that comes with living in this sin-cursed world. It just comes with the territory when you're under the curse to experience this kind of brokenness. And in our passage today, we discover Joseph, hated by his brothers, the target of a conspiracy, thrown into a pit, left for dead, sold into slavery, and I'm just giving you the highlights. Okay, perhaps you can relate to some of this. Maybe, maybe you know what it's like to have fam- family members that are against you. Maybe you're not looking forward to Christmas dinner because you know that there's uh, going to be an elephant in the room, that, there's gonna, that that conflict is just simmering below the surface and it's ready to erupt. Maybe today you're down in the dumps. Maybe you're in the metaphorical pit and you feel trapped and hopeless and helpless, well, I'm glad to be able to share with you today that there is hope, that there is help, there is salvation uh, for those who find themselves in this condition. And it's my pleasure to preach this message, this passage, which loudly proclaims that all is well. All is well. I'm, a, I'm quite aware that in the throes of the Christmas season, uh, th- that proclamation might, might not be landing on you like the good news that it actually is. Okay, around this time of year, there's all kinds of best wishes and, and lots of talk about peace and goodwill and lots of other generic expressions of just positive vibes. And in such a a wintry mix, if we could call it that, the affirmation that all is well threatens to just kind of get snowed under in all of the rest. But there's a significant difference. Here's the difference. The, The world's season's greetings and their well wishes for you are ungrounded. Okay, there's no foundation to them. There's no power behind them that can actually bring them to fruition. So they can't help but be trite and amount to little more than wishful thinking. I'm not trying to be a Scrooge. I'm just trying to be realistic. It's, it's nice that your neighbor wishes you the best and all kinds of happiness and hopes that all is well, but your neighbor has absolutely no clue how that is even possible. But when the Bible says all is well, it provides us the reason. It tells us not just the what, 
but also the why, even if it doesn't all the time tell us the how, frustratingly. But this passage can confidently proclaim to us that all is well because it grounds that affirmation in the absolute sovereignty of a loving Heavenly Father. And so let's look at that together. That's what I want to show you, Lord willing, and uh, we'll just work our way through the text in order to see it. Let's look at point number one, well. And you can see this in verses 12 to 17 especially. And here we're asking the same question that Jacob's asking. Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, He's asking about his boys in verse 14, are they well? Are they well? Shepherding a large flock requires that you are mobile, you're constantly on the move looking for greener pastures, new grazing area. And currently his sons are in the vicinity of Shechem, which is about 50 miles away. And likely he he would not have heard any kind of report about these guys for some time now. So naturally, he's wondering about their well-being as well as how the flock's doing. But I, I can't help but think that Jacob's greatest concern is not agricultural. After all, his, his sons are all grown men by now. They're, they're all experienced shepherds. He probably doesn't lack any confidence in their ability to perform their job. Although it is true, I'll, I'll grant you this, that, it, that many fathers uh, have a very difficult time passing along the family business to sons and they constantly micromanage and nitpick when their sons take over. I, I understand that typically happens, but I don't see, that that, I don't see much sign of that in the text that Jacob's concern is agricultural. Instead, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Jacob's greatest concern is spiritual. He, you'll recall from earlier in the chapter that when Joseph came back with a report from being in the field with his brothers, he, he didn't have great things to say about them. And again, not, this is, has nothing to do with their shepherding skill. Verse 2 said, he brought back a bad report of them to his father. And the word for bad there is raw, which means evil. It means they were up to no good. They had started making trouble in the neighborhood. And that's, that's um, the foundation for Jacob's biggest fear, for his greatest concern. And if they're this way in general, just... Think about what they could get up to 50 miles from home. Think about the trouble that they could get into in Shechem. And actually, I think the narrator wants us to, re to remind us of something. He wants us to recall the trouble that they've already gotten themselves into in Shechem last time they were in that town. Back in chapter 34, you'll recall, after the incident with Dinah, we saw the kind of evil that these brothers were capable of when they engaged in mass murder, in vindication for the wrong that had been done to their sister. So to know that his sons are once again in the vicinity of Shechem must be making Jacob pretty nervous. 
He must be losing a lot of sleep because who knows if the boys still have evil intentions towards that city. Or who knows if some people may have trickled back into that city who now want to repay them for the evil that they had repaid them. So Jacob is rightly concerned and he sends Joseph off to check on them. And at this point, we're reminded of some of the details that we learned last time. For example, we learn that Joseph is unlike his brothers in that he is not bent on evil like they are. He rather loves truth and and goodness. He is obedient. You can see this when his father summons him for this task. He says at the end of verse 13, Here I am. And that is the universal language in Scripture of submission, of obedience. In addition, we're, we're reminded here in this passage of some of the things that we learned about Jacob, specifically that he has learned favoritism from his parents. Uh, he was the object of his mom's favor, favoritism. His brother was the object of his dad's. And now Joseph... Uh, inherits all of his favor and his love directed towards this boy. So off Joseph goes with his fancy coat, his kingly garment, as we saw last time. He goes to Shechem to see whether his brothers are well. But notice that Jacob never receives the answer. He sends Joseph, but Joseph never returns with the report. From from Jacob's perspective, his question, his concern, is just left hanging in the air. But as the narrative develops, we, we know the answer. We get the report. We can see very clearly that things are not well with them. These brothers are still capable of very great evil, even evil against their own flesh and blood. We'll look at this more under our next heading, but before we get there, I think we need to just pause and remind ourselves that there's nothing unique about these characters. I think it would do us well to understand that this is actually the natural condition of every single one of us. Again, there's nothing unique about the 12 sons of Israel. Romans 3 is describing all of us when it says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The, The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes these 12 sons. That describes you and me and every single person that has ever been born. And so we could say, just initially, by default, all is not well. 
This is why the world seasons greetings and lofty hopes for things like peace on earth, why they ring so hollow. How can you have any meaningful ideas about the solution when you don't even understand what our fundamental problem is? What is the fundamental problem of humanity? Some of our favorite Christmas carols, I think, give the best answer. Like Answers like, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Or, God and sinners, as we sang, need to be reconciled. That's the problem. So, all is not well with Israel's 12 sons, and all is not well with us. Let's just face it, we desperately need a Savior. Let's look at point number two. Well, and here we're focusing on uh, verses 18 to 28, the, the middle portion here. And this section centers on an actual well, or a pit, if you prefer. So Joseph finally finds his brothers. It, it turns out that they ventured another 15 miles past Shechem to a place called Dothan. Some man had, had put um, Joseph onto their trail, and so by verse 17, he's caught up with them, and he spies them, he sees them now. But now, just as soon as that happens, you, you, you can see in the text that the camera angle changes. Suddenly, we're not walking any longer with Joseph, but we are with the brothers who are looking out into the horizon, and, and we see as Joseph now comes into view. And you wonder, well, how could they see Joseph from such a far distance? As verse 18 says, they saw him from afar. And no doubt it was because they saw the sunlight flashing off of the sequins on his robe. He must have looked like a disco ball, you know, coming towards them. But he's still far enough away that they can, they can talk about him. And you can kind of picture how this happens. It starts probably starts with them mocking him and some guy coming up with a harebrained plan and, and the other guy saying, that's actually not too bad. Maybe we could do that. And before long, they're plotting to kill him and to throw him in one of the pits. They're planning to say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And listen, listen to this. This is very insightful. They, they say... And then we will see what will become of his dreams. That's a bit of a tell there. You can, you can see what their issue is, right? You can tell by how their dialogue begins and ends. You know exactly what their problem is, and it has everything to do with the dreams. The whole idea that they would one day bow down before their younger brother Joseph, is just appalling to them. It's got their goat, if you will. And let's not forget what we learned last time, which is these dreams are divine revelation. Okay, the, the brothers clearly understood them as such. They understood what the dreams meant immediately. They, they know instinctively that this is God revealing what his plan is. 
And so it wasn't so much that they wanted to kill their brother as it was that they wanted to destroy the plan of God. I think that's an important distinction. They're not motivated just out of jealousy and hatred towards their brother. They're actually angry at God. And they're, and they're seeking, if it's possible, to destroy God's plan for their family. I wonder if this is starting to sound familiar to you in any way. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus was alluding to this when he told the parable of the wicked tenants. You remember that one? These were guys that were renting a vineyard that the farmer had planted, and the deal was that they were, at harvest time, going to send uh, some of a good portion of the crops to the landowner, but they kept refusing to send the landowner his share, despite the fact that the landowner kept sending servants to collect. But here's the similar part. The landlord eventually says, hey, I'll send my son whom I love. Surely they'll respect my son. But when the wicked tenants saw the favored son, they said to themselves, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. A lot of the same language and ideas that come through in both. In both cases, it's, it's a jealousy and outright rejection of the plan of God that motivates wicked men to kill the favored son. In both cases, wicked men are operating under the delusion that they can prevent God's plan from ever coming to fruition. If only they could get rid of the beloved son, then they'll have it. Then, then they will have accomplished their plan. But they are oh so wrong. In every case, they're so wrong. Job confessed uh, truth when he said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can ever be thwarted. God is not going to be mocked. God's plan will happen. Instead, what we get to see is God thwarting the brother's purposes. Enter Reuben, who uh, is in the role here of a would-be savior. He's the eldest brother, you might recall. He's, he bears the brunt of the responsibility for all that goes on with the boys. And his desire is to rescue Joseph. Though it's not entirely clear that he has the greatest motives for that. His real reasons are given at the end of verse 22. Just look, look there with me. He, he wants to be able to save Joseph so that he can be the one to restore him to his father. That would, that would look really good on him, wouldn't it? And Reuben needs something that will make him look good in the eyes of his father because Reuben has just massively sinned against his father by having slept with one of his father's concubines. An unbelievably dishonoring thing to do. And Reuben, uh, you get the sense, is, is regretting how that sin has affected his standing. And so he's looking for some kind of redemption with his father. 
So Reuben isn't interested so much in saving Joseph's skin as he is saving his own skin. Nevertheless, he uh, intervenes. But what's also clear, I think, from this passage is that after Reuben's grievous sin, his leadership in the family has faltered beyond repair. His argument ends up winning the day, so they don't kill Joseph. They opt instead to let him die. Uh, That's a distinction that is sometimes made in uh, medicine, end-of-life decisions. And uh, it's a legitimate uh, distinction there, but you'll see that it's not a legitimate distinction when you are doing violence to someone. So they, they opt not to kill him. They're going to be content to just let him die in this pit. But notice that they go on to make more decisions concerning Joseph, all without Reuben. Reuben somehow is off somewhere, maybe with the flock, or a portion of the flock, so that when he returns, he, he's planning to rescue Joseph himself, but he's shocked to find out that, that Joseph's not there, that the brothers had gotten to him first. And he's beside himself, Reuben is. He tears his clothes. Again, not out of grief for jo- Joseph, but out of grief for himself. He says, I've got no place to go. Like it's all about him now. And it's true, he's got no place to go because he can't go back to his father and report what's happened to his father's favorite son under his watch. And so a truly pathetic image of Reuben now fully emerges. He's supposed to be the oldest. He's supposed to be the strongest. He's supposed to be the leader of this pack. He's the would-be savior of his younger brother. But how can he be an effective savior when he himself is so morally compromised? And what's happening here already in practice is something that's going to be established and enshrined when Jacob blesses his sons at the end of his life, which is that the leadership in this family is going to move off of Reuben, the oldest, and go to Judah. The problem is that at this time, Reuben himself is compromised by sin, as the next chapter will make abundantly clear, and hence our PG warning. But even here in verses 26 and following, Judah is exercising leadership, but it's a real sketchy kind of leadership. So to get a sense of that, just let's listen into their conversation while they're eating lunch. While they're eating lunch, I mean, just think about that. I know uh, this is dangerous to talk about because I know right now you're, you're actually thinking about eating lunch. That's on your mind right now. But I hope, I hope that wouldn't be on your mind right after you had left your brother for dead in a pit. I hope, well, I hope you wouldn't do that. But if you did that, I hope eating lunch would not be the next thing that you think about. But this is what happens in verse 25. It says, Then they sat down to eat. And I believe that the narrator wants to shock us with that statement. 
I don't know if you've had the stomach to watch any kind of documentary about a serial killer or anything like that, a true crime story, but some of it's really sick. Some of these pathological people that can just carry on like n no problem after they do the most heinous of things. It's shocking, and it's meant to shock us. This is what sin will do to you. This is, this is one of the ways that the Bible teaches us about sin. It's to shock us. This is what sin will do to you. It'll make the alarm bells in your stomach drown out the alarm bells in your conscience. And that's a scary place to be. Somewhere along the line, one insightful commentator has pointed out the similarities between the fictional ferocious beast that these brothers have created and the brothers themselves. So they, the boys to, or were going to tell their father that a ferocious beast had attacked their brother and then sat down to feast on him. But in fact, they were the ones that attacked their brother and then they sat down to feast. So th it shows you who the real beasts are, right? Again, this is what sin will do to you. It turns you into a beast. You, you can indulge in the most wicked act and then wipe your mouth and say, I've done nothing wrong. So, that, so the boys here are mowing down on their mutton sandwiches. And once again, they look up uh, to see something very interesting. It's some of their distant relatives, the Ishmaelites, a.k.a. the Midianites. And that might be a little confusing in the text, but they are basically interchangeable. Okay, you can, um, they've referred to in, in those two different ways. These are a bunch of traders who are on their way to Egypt. And Judah has a great idea in verse 26. He, he reasons this way. He, he says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Midianites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. It's actually a despicable speech when you think about it. And it shows you once again just how deceptive sin can be. Look at all of the admissions in it. Look at all of the things that he admits. First, Judah concedes that there's no real difference between killing Joseph and leaving him for dead, which is what they've done. But, but Judah still understands it to be killing. Furthermore, at the end of the speech, in an effort to persuade his brothers, he speaks from the moral high ground, if you will, about what an atrocity it would be to kill a brother, someone of their own flesh and blood. Even though... You know, up to this point, that's exactly what they were very comfortable doing. The only thing that's changed here is that now there's an opportunity to line their pockets in the, in the process. When, when Judah says, what profit is there in our previous plan? He literally means profit. Now he's found a way to, to make some money. And this passage uh, prompted me this week to reflect on just how much of our sin is intentional. 
deliberate, what the Puritans uh, called high-handed sin. Oh sure, sometimes when we sin, um, we aren't even aware of it, or it's done out of ignorance. Our ignorance is not excusable, but it's ignorance nonetheless. But I believe that the vast portion of our sin is stuff that we are totally conscious of. It's completely willful. We know exactly what we're doing. Even when we claim the moral high ground, we know that we're frauds. Isn't this right? And it tells you just again how much we desperately need a savior. These are Joseph's would-be saviors, Reuben, Judah, and they're both totally compromised. We, we sing, who, O Lord, can save themselves, their own souls to heal? And this is meant to be a rhetorical question, but we treat it like a challenge. We're like, wait, here, hold my eggnog. I'm, I'm going to... No, seriously, try to notice this this Christmas. All of the world's songs and phrases and tidings are, when you boil them down, they're just empty efforts at self-justification and self-salvation. And it's it, you've got to wade through a lot of a lot of stuff to to get there because there's all kinds of talk about a baby savior. But the, actually, the world is quite comfortable talking about a baby savior because a baby is not very threatening to their program of self-actualization. But just listen to how much of the, the talk is nothing, nothing more, nothing less than, than just that the world's going to save its, itself. We're going to bring peace. Just let it begin with you. We're going to feed the world. But we who have been saved, we know the utter futility of our own efforts. We understand and we sing to our Savior, you alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. Speaking of grave, this is basically where Joseph is right now. His brethren have thrown him into a cistern. Uh, this is a well, this is a pit that was dug into the earth and it's sort of a, uh, a jug shape. So it's narrow at the top and then it flares out at the bottom. It was designed to drain and to store surface water, the runoff, so that it could be used later, say, to, to water a flock of sheep. And it's in that pit, it's in that grave that they have left Joseph for dead. To drown, perhaps, or at least to be exposed to the cold and to the lack of food. But we read in verse 24 that the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Whatever happens to Joseph, he's not going to drown which is just one of the many very clear fingerprints that we have all over this text 
fingerprints of Joseph's true Savior. Fingerprints that come from the hand of providence. Let's talk more about that under our third point. Move on to uh, something totally different in point number three, well. And we're going to focus on verses 29 to 36. Let me just catch us up, okay? Joseph's lying in the pit, and he hears a bunch, bunch of commotion above him. He hears the clinking of 20 shekels of silver, which is the going rate for a male slave at that time. He sees a bright light as the lid to the well is removed, and suddenly he feels himself lifted up and then shackled and tied to a line of camels headed south. His brothers take Joseph's fancy coat and they slaughter a goat and they dip the coat in the blood and all of this, of course, is an effort to, to make their story more plausible about the wild beast attack. And so they bring the coat to Jacob and they ask, and this, is, this should have a PG warning, this is disgusting to read, Hey, we found this. Um, Are you able to identify if this belongs to your son? And it's so disingenuous, it's it's sickening. And Joseph says, trembling, yes it is. And he comes to the conclusion that these boys have basically forced him to, which is that his beloved son was dead. That he must have been attacked by some ferocious predator torn to shreds with this amount of blood. Do, do you notice the irony here, by the way? Jacob once tricked his father with clothes and by slaughtering a goat. And now his own sons are tricking him with these same tools. Let's just ask a few questions uh, in conclusion. First, we could ask, is it well with Jacob? Is it well with Jacob? And the answer is, obviously not. First, he's lost his favorite wife, and now he's lost his favorite son, and he is inconsolable. Verses 34 and 35 describe in in detail his great grief not to mention the callousness of his sons who are trying to comfort him in regards to Joseph. All the while, they're withholding the truth that they know would comfort him, but it would also enrage him. But as it stands, uh, Jacob is prepared to go to his death wearing black clothes every day of his life, mourning his son. He is refusing to be comforted. And among other things, you you just have to understand that this is exposing the idolatry that's in Jacob's heart, this idolatry that he has with family, with his son. Things are not well with Jacob. The more important question is, as far as the narrator is concerned, is it well with Joseph? Is it well with Joseph? 
Now things were looking pretty bleak for a while there, but look at how the chapter closes. Look at the last verse. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The key word there, friends, is meanwhile. That's a wonderful word, meanwhile. I'm, I'm zealous that you would come to understand and appreciate what meanwhile means. Meanwhile means that things are happening away from you, apart from you, separately from your present circumstances. And this is so important because in, in our distress, we, we tend to get fixated on our own deal, you know, on the stuff that's happening right now, right here, to me, around me. Meanwhile says, there's all kinds of other stuff that's going on at the same time. Stuff that may prove to be quite important for you. Stuff, stuff that you can't see but is happening nonetheless. The hand of providence has been very busy throughout this whole passage. Again, don't be thrown off by the lack of um, mention of God's name in this passage. His hand, his fingerprints are all over this story. You know that time that Jacob spent wandering in the fields around Shechem back in verse 15 looking for his brothers? Well, that was, it turns out, just enough time for Joseph to providentially encounter the one guy that had overheard their plans to go to Dothan. And then Joseph's delay in wandering and talking to that man just happened to... You know, the timing just worked perfectly with these Midianite importer-exporters when they're passing through. And so many, so many details worked out so perfectly in the meanwhile when you weren't even paying attention, when you weren't even watching. And those details, just when you, when you actually see them and think about them, it leaves you amazed at the absolute sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. He, he's working in the meanwhile. That's the point. Is it well with Joseph? Oh yeah, it's well with Joseph. All is well. And why is that? Because he serves a powerful Lord who is working out everything in the meanwhile. He alone has saved Joseph. He alone has lifted him from the grave, so to speak. He's lifted him from a pit and he's put his feet on a rock. Better yet, he has set Joseph's feet in a palace. In the meanwhile, he's been sold to Potiphar, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. You think that's going to become an important little detail? It's just like the brothers said, now let's see what becomes of his dreams. We're going to get to see that all right. We're going to have to wait a few weeks. Next week, Lord willing, we'll have a, a brief interlude 
with an uplifting Christmas message from Genesis 38. You'll want to make plans to be here. But let me leave you with this question. Is it well with you? When it comes to you and your circumstances. And, and don't hear me wrong, I'm not for a second downplaying how difficult your circumstances are. In, in many cases, I, I know them. You've shared them with me. And I, I know that those are painful. Those are brutal. I'm not downplaying that at all. I'm simply asking, whatever your lot, have you learned to say, it is well? All is well? I'm not asking if you've learned to give some trite, festive, wishful thinking kind of a slogan. I'm asking, are, is it all well because of a deep abiding trust that you have in your loving and heavenly Father, your, the sovereign God that you serve, your Savior, who is working in the meanwhile everything for your good and for his glory. My prayer is that we would all be found resting in him, hoping trusting, believing that all is well. Amen? Amen. Amen.